questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Someone once said that history contributes to the disenchantment of the world. Nations seem to require myth. How do we define civilization? It's the stage of human social development, an organization that is considered most advanced. Or is it? Greetings. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. And tonight we discuss the myth of civilization with a Veritas veteran who does not require a formal introduction. I'm referring to our friend, Neil Kramer. Hello, Neil, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? Hey, Mel. It's always a total pleasure to be back with you. I'm doing real well. How are you doing? Excellent. And by the way, since you're always traveling around the world, are you in, in Oregon now? I'm not. I'm actually, I, I live up near Seattle, so I'm on the Olympic Peninsula up in Washington State. So I'm about an hour west of Seattle. Oh, excellent. Well, I, I know that recently you were in Costa Rica, correct? I was, yeah. So I, I came I came from the sort of, you know, tropical jungles of uh, rainforest of Costa Rica in Central America to the sort of misty mountain forests of Washington State. So I, I always seem to be, you know, meandering under the trees somewhere, which is a very happy thing for me. So, <laughs> yeah, I love I love Oregon and Washington are two of my favorite places. So I'm very happy to sp- spend a lot of time here. But yeah, Washington, Washington's a beautiful place. It's, it's been a long, dark winter, but um, the, the, the forest here and the mountainside and the rivers and the lakes, I'm just exploring them all fresh. So I'm having a super time. That's wonderful. And before we begin the, the interview and the myth mm. of civilization and all the other topics we'll be discussing, I was curious to get your take on something. If you notice, folks, in the past few shows, I've shortened the intros. Yeah, they used to be two and a half minutes, and I realized that was too overkill. It was too long. But I noticed this in movie theaters. I noticed it, noticed it with children. If you have children trying to watch a, a movie that says, you know, probably before the, the mid-1990s, it's very hard for them to watch it. What's going on with civilization when it comes to the attention span? We don't seem to enjoy listening to somebody speak for a long period of time. And that's why my intros are, have become shortened to, to appease some people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think your listeners will think the shorter the intro, the better, which which when I'm listening to shows and you say, this is a guy, he's talking about mysticism, it's neilkramer.com, whatever. Hello, Neil, let's go. I personally prefer it when someone does that. But on your wider theme of attention span, definitely with the internet since the late 90s, this discursiveness is the word here. Discursiveness is moving on from one thing to another, to another, to another, to another. That's become crazy now with the internet. Say like a frog hopping from one lily pad to another. It doesn't stay hardly any time at all. It just is constantly hopping, seeing what's new on the next lily pad, what flowers there are, what flies to eat, what the water's like over there. And it's, it's constantly moving from one thing to another. And even in cinema, you can, you can see this discursiveness and this speed. So there's a, there's a thing in filmmaking which... Uh, I've been learning things about filmmaking as I've been working on this transmutation project, which is complete now. We'll mention that perhaps later. Mm-hmm. But one of the things is average shot length, which is uh, the sort of duration of a shot between cuts in the film. So I'll shot, like, say, on a guy's face, and then it cuts to the woman he's talking to. So it's the average shot length that the camera stays on each subject. And basically, when you go back to the movies of the 50s and 60s and 70s the average shot length is quite long so the camera will stay on its subject for quite a while and you get a sense of purpose and being you see the guy's face you see the apartment you see the conversation you see the landscape you it places you in there in modern films that average shot length has gone down to less than a second for most things just cut 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 flick 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 new image new image new image And so even watching television, if you watch commercials on live broadcast television, for someone who's like, say, 40 or older, it's virtually unwatchable because the average shot length is so tiny that your eye is being bombarded with just like this influx of colors and shapes and sounds. And regardless of what it is, whether it's a lovely nature program or somebody getting their head blown off, 
it doesn't make any difference. The brain doesn't like to move at that velocity. It doesn't like to see that many things. So even when we're scrolling through, you know, Google images or our Pinterest boards or through, you know, libraries of sound archives, when you're just scrolling, 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 it's bad for the brain. So that shortens the attention span. If you're endlessly scrolling through things, it actually reduces your ability to focus, period, regardless of what you're doing. So my advice, like with everything, is the fabulous technology we've got certainly opens things up, but you have to modulate it and discipline yourself. So more and more, a time arrives in the day where I just shut that laptop, shut that computer, turn that monitor off, and shut the door. And all the technology now is in this room. So the phone, it doesn't live by the bedside anymore. It lives in this room. And everything gets turned off. And it's just gradually improved the quality of life for me. So I, I always advise people to do that. Turn the stuff off. If you carry a cell phone around, keep it in airplane mode all the time unless you're going to make a call. What do you want to know about things for? Is there anything that vastly important? Or would you prefer to cultivate your own signal, your own consciousness, your own broadcast, and you know be where you are? So t to have constant interruptions is... A sort of trick of empire really it keeps people dumb it's the distraction and you know recently i, I know. produced uh, a video a drone video for my, my, oh, yeah. my vacation yeah. rental company and i wanted to just have five seconds per 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 uh, click cl clip if you will and i thought that was sh short enough and people complain and i'm thinking how are you going to observe the ocean and the and the lighthouses if it's only going to be a second, a second, a second. Yeah, I think if you go, if you go and look at a film, say like uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, the average shot length in that is about 13 seconds. So that means that for 13 seconds, most shots, the camera is static on one subject and doesn't move. That's unheard of today. You won't see modern films unless they're really obscure art house films. You won't see a film stay on its subject for more than two three seconds maybe so all the new movies that come out that that's the that's the thing to watch out for and so when people become sort of acclimated to that they then expect it with everything conversation food clothes sex music <laughs> you know it's throughout the whole thing so you have to you have to concentrate on focus because in focus and in duration comes depth comes color comes substance and vitality if it's always moving, it's it's very colourful in, in in a sense, you know, like the multicoloured fabric that moves before your eyes, a tapestry of so many wonderful glittery things to look at, but you never go deep. It's always just the surface. So focus equals quality to me, and I think that's that's a sort of rule of thumb that I try and uh, make part of my life. And if the camera is staying on the subject, the camera is actually moving. Nothing is static yeah. anymore. That's right. His camera's whizzing around 360 degrees. Like even watching The Matrix from 1999, it looks slow now. And when that came out, I could barely process what was happening on the screen. Now, The Matrix, Keanu Reeves and uh, co. is slow, a slow film compared to what happens today with the science fiction and uh, you know fantasy uh, superhero movies. I can't even watch them personally. I'd rather watch the bloody flowers grow in the garden in my yard why do you think that is as you said it's it's an empire construct what why are they doing that because it focuses people on trivialities it focuses people on things that are moving so fast that you become accustomed to the idea that depth is not necessary in life and where there's no depth there's no substance where there's no substance there's no meaning so fast moving media reduces people's search for meaning so it doesn't get more profound than that in a manner of speaking and yet that is the equation i would draw is this leading to technological addiction i'm just imagining you walking a forest or me sitting on a mm. on a quiet beach to most people that seems boring now well to some to most people um it may seem boring but uh most people that i speak to it's it's something that they want to do because I, I I'm happy to say that you know I've become I've, I've become forgetful about mainstream consciousness what that looks like because I've 
created a situation where I'm usually talking to people who are very alive, very self-determining. And they've started to realize that even for the best of us, me and you and the audience and other guys and girls listening to this or whatever, we realize we have to watch out because we are information hungry, most of us. And we're always in sort of discovery mode. We're always eager to explore things. And this sort of penchant for discovery can make us sort of develop this little habit. You know, you think, I'll just have a little injection of heroin in the morning and then that'll that'll be okay. And then lunchtime, well, maybe one more. Then the afternoon, well, I'm kind of bored, maybe a bit more. Well, now it's dinner time and, well, I need it to sleep sometimes as well. So if you think of the the telephone, particularly the smartphones, as a needle, then you're on the right lines. Now let's go to the meat of things, the myth of civilization. Why, first of all, why do we require, why do nations require myth? Myth is uh, a way of observing the world for people who don't want to formulate that for themselves or who have not yet arrived at a point of development to do that. So we have myths that are very um, substantial and profound and useful, perhaps particularly from Egypt and Greece, uh, myths that come through to today and from um, the native peoples of Europe and Scandinavia in particular are ones that I'm interested in. And then, you know, being American now and living in America for the last decade, I've familiarized myself with the myths of these nations. And I didn't know anything. I couldn't create a new American myth. So I took the ones that existed into my hands and mind and heart and examined them. And they're like doorways. You know, they, they invite you inwards to a sort of richer, um, more purposeful world in a way. And it's, um, a myth can be very scientific, you know. A myth can be very um, contemporary and very articulate. I think people think with a myth that it's old and it's about spirits and about strange apparitions and whatnot. But a myth can be very hard science today, and it's still a myth. It's just an idea. It's an idea presented to lend some structure to the bloody, strange, nebulous nature of reality, which for someone like me... And you, and again, uh, the the good audience that you've cultivated over the years, we love the mystery. We love the nebula, strange, bizarre, fascinating world, and all its layers of concealment and magic. It's it's good, but for many people in the mainstream, which which we'll come to in a moment, that's terrifying. And so myths give people like um, training wheels, stabilizers on a bicycle, and it's like okay. Here's a myth, and you can go with this and explore it. But it's always inviting you, when you get into the heart of the myth, to then take it your own way and say, okay, there's, an, there's another layer. You've just reached the next point of initiation. Come further, further into this mystery, you know, this encounter with the mystery. And then instead of it being an impersonal myth, like, say, you know, the Greek mythos or the Scandinavian or Norse mythology, which is wonderful, it then starts to become more personal. So you have your own mythology of your journeys through the deserts and forests and cities and mountains and with this amazing woman and this amazing man and these tribal brothers and sisters. And your own mythology starts to arise. The more you encounter the mystery, the more personal it becomes, let's say it like that. Why is civilization then a myth? Okay, so this is this is the as you say this is the uh, this is the big stake of our conversation, shall we say? L- let me say this by by way of an introduction. I, th- I think it's worth defining what it is we're going to talk about here and why, um, as you say. And just speaking for myself, my own standard operating procedure, uh, what I usually talk about and what I do for a living, is to harness a kind of contemporary mysticism to build inner strength in people. That's what I do for a living. I create an environment for people to see a stronger version of themselves and then activate that vision. And and in this work that I do, there's a, a sort of potent spiritual component for sure. And there's a philosophical one, there's a metaphysical one, and there's some heavy, rich alchemical ideas too. So my work, 90% of the time, is focused on cultivating inner strength and deep insight in the, an individual life. 
And perhaps, Mel, if I may say, what I often see as, as the, the regular order of business on a, a great show like yours, a great show like Veritas, is to uh, yeah. investigate the nature of phenomena, yeah, to, to probe alternative history, to explore bleeding-edge science, to ex- expose black projects and the surveillance state and government overreach and, you know, delve into all sorts of very singular and fascinating discoveries that, that lie really well outside of the mainstream. Is that is that fair to say? No, oh, that was a great description, yes. Okay. So when there is a, te- a, a really serious tectonic shift in social structure and media coverage and imperial tactics and in language uses, now that we're seeing in society such vast transformations right now, I think it is almost obligatory for us to turn whatever skills we have, whatever skills we've refined in ourselves in terms of illumination, investigation, truthfulness towards this unprecedented sort of universal upheaval that we're seeing now in the streets and in the, you know, the offices and factories and villages and the media. And I think that the men and women who comprehend the deeper purpose of what is really happening with Mel and Veritas and Neil Kramer and his spiritual practice, they appreciate that the overall endeavor is the same. What we're actually trying to do is determine with as much pure mind and heart as we can what is real and what is not, what is true and what is untrue. And the funny thing is, particularly at the moment, even more than the crazy metaphysical multidimensional stuff I do and the crazy UFO stuff or whatever that pushes the fringe on what you do, what we're seeing now in society, the most apparently ordinary thing the truth that we are overturning, the truth, the untruth that we discover, the concealment that we find, everything is so deeply unpopular right now. And it goes against the grain in the most vigorous and provocative ways that it's, it's just astonishing. So when we focus our attention on society and politics and culture and collectivism, some people get activated by that, don't they? And they're emotional investments in all sorts of ideas about left-leaning liberalism and right-leaning conservatism, it gets painful and people become very irate and very nasty and they rant and rave or they walk away or they hurl insults and and generally sort of lose their center. They become polarized. And I would say right off the top as we get into this, whatever side you get polarized to, it's a sign of becoming sort of philosophically and psychically co-opted by empire. So people trapped in belief systems whose thoughts are not their own and who are paying the price for really a sort of lifelong unconscious emotional investment into things that have been made by outside forces, they're getting a real mess. And it's, it's very infuriating as well because those people have no idea that they have been owned and hoodwinked and programmed. They have no idea. They think that they are sophisticated, modern people making good choices for themselves in life, and they are not. They are not. And it can sound a bit harsh when I speak like this, because I'm usually you know, very much seeking the point of equilibrium and harmony and neutrality, which I do that. That doesn't mean that you dilute yourself and become less, less bold, the more equilibrium I have in my life, the more power, more aggression, the more force I can wield. But it's disciplined aggression, disciplined force, just like the athlete or the the archer or the you know the um, the sportsman. It's a disciplined kind of power. But if that sounds harsh, what we're saying about mainstream society, there, let me just give you this quote from uh, George Gurdjieff. It was a sort of mystical scholar from you know, way back. And he he said this about a hundred years ago, and I've got this quote here to read. In order to awaken, first of all, one must realize that one is in a state of sleep. And in order to realize that one is indeed in a a state of sleep, one must recognize and fully understand the nature of the forces which operate to keep one in a state of sleep or hypnosis. And it is absurd to think that this can be done by seeking information from the very source which induces the hypnosis. Okay? 
So mark that, that quote. Mark those words. Gurdjieff is telling us a hundred years ago, it is absurd to think that any awakening can arise from the very sources of media and education which induced the hypnosis in the first place. And we would do very well to realize that today. You know, consider those those very powerful words in light of what we're seeing today. So we, we have to always tell ourselves the truth, which to me is now very evident, more so than it's ever been in, in society, that most people are not willing to awaken themselves to their own God-given powers of discernment. Most people do not want to know the nature of things. They just want to be comfortable and safe. And that's that's a hard thing to look at for us. That's a hard thing to say. So um, as as we begin to get into the nature of this sort of massive social commotion that's across America and Europe and further afield at the moment, let, let's examine this social change in terms of what it is not, right? Because I think this is important. I think the audience will find this interesting. All these social movements that we're seeing at the moment, this division in society with the UK Brexit and Greece and deep changes in German and French society with Marine Le Pen and, of course, Trump here and Sweden and Austria and people in the streets and violence and hate and great disturbance, all of that seemingly a sort of, you know, real right turn in social philosophy, all that stuff. Let me tell you what I think that is not. It is not an ideological war. It is not a conflict of principles and values from left-leaning liberals and Democrats against, you know, right-leaning conservatives and Republicans. It is not that. It is not about borderless oneness or bordering nationhood. It's not that. And it has nothing to do with racism or sexism or xenophobia or bigotry or any of that. It is something, in my view, more serious than any of those things. What we are seeing now in the world today is the earth-shattering difference between the free human and the conditioned human. And that's it. Take the politics right out of it. Forget it. We're seeing a, 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 a sort of Grand Canyon between the self-determining, awakened, natural, sovereign man and the profoundly conditioned, sleepwalking robot. Those who can think freely and those who cannot. So right, right there in the news every day, on the internet and television, in the newspapers and magazines and the feeds and the screens and the streams of information, you can see, can you not, this staggering contrast between those who are masters of their own destiny and the indoctrinated servants of empire. And we can see it in the behavior, though, as I say, those who maintain a great internal equilibrium who can question everything, left and right, red and blue, doesn't matter. And those who are so quick to be polarized by outside forces. And we are witnessing this world shift at the moment. And, and to me, it exposes this profound level of educational conditioning that we've never seen before, at least in the last millennia. Hundreds of millions of conditioned people doing what their programmers say. And here's the, here's the kicker, and then I'll hand it over to you for a second. Those conditioned people are not only in government and the media and the intelligence services and in Hollywood and corporations, they're also in schools and hospitals, and they are among our friends and family, the, the people we grew up with, the good-hearted and wrong-hearted people, black and white, rich and poor, everywhere, all the time, in every street, every living room, every office, every everywhere, conditioned men and women of earth who are renouncing their divine endowment of self-determination. They are not exercising it and instead are choosing to conceal themselves in a very violent unreality. And that's, that's, the, that's the entryway to this myth of civilization. So rather than politicizing it, which empire loves us to do that, and we'll give a super brief uh, definition of empire later for those who've not come across it. Let's just call it the control system. If you polarize, empire loves it. 
if you vote for this, vote for that, it loves it. You might vote strategically, but if you um, put your heart and soul into an imperial liberal agenda or an imperial conservative agenda, empire loves nothing more than to see us on the streets battling with each other on that. And so the only path forward is the path of equilibrium. But that can only happen when someone has deconditioned themselves, made the choice to get that stuff out of the head and think freely and clearly for themselves. And the thing is, and here's, here's the, the thing that's never happened before. Some people are choosing to say, no, I'm not interested. I'd rather live in a delusional state and cling to this matrix and protect my pod, protect my place in the matrix, then know what is real. When somebody is doing that, there is no dialogue with that person. It's over. And now you can see that in the streets. It's not just an idea anymore, politely talked about at dinner tables. It's right in the streets. People are killing each other today in the streets, setting things on fire, burning things down, stopping people talking freely. So it's there. It's the, it's the gap between the free human and the conditioned human. This is it. We're in it right now. Well, to me, it sounds like cognitive dissonance also, but this political pendulum that swings left and right every so often, is it orchestrated to maintain a balance and the pressure cooker contained, or is this different? What we're seeing in, in the USA, as you said, Britain, France, yeah. Sweden, and other countries, yeah, just the pendulum question. swinging, or is it because the people have finally awakened to, a real, to their reality? Great question. It's different. It's completely different. Anyone who thinks this everything is orchestrated, everything is this, it's always empire, it's always empire, that is the system's big trick to make you think it's so omnipotent that nothing we can ever do makes any difference. Here, here's the golden nugget that I have, I have discovered for myself. It may be of no interest to anyone else, but it is precious to me. The will of the people, the pure will of the people, is the will of God. And what I mean by that is when we know what is true and right and powerful and harmonious and beautiful, that's a divine force and it cannot be messed with and nobody can override it. So when the true will of this people speak, empire's in big trouble. So all it can do is try and persuade people that that will is wrong. That's all it can do. And when I look at this situation in thinking very carefully about this over recent times, Because as I've said to you before on this program, you know, people take a lot of, put a lot of stock into what you and I say and, and many of your other wonderful guests and go away and, you know, we'll change things at home and at work and in the relationships based on that. So we have a responsibility to speak carefully on this, boldly, but carefully. And when I think about this, um, one observation helps me to understand the mess we're in above all others. And this comes to what is the myth of civilization. Let me explain it like this. There's one central illusion, one central mirage that keeps humankind from any meaningful or sustained advancement, and that is the illusion that we are civilized, that we've achieved a level of civilization, a sort of stage of social development in which we can assume we've uh, achieved education, good, good education, solid education, good medicine, Morality, security, fair representational government, um, spiritual integrity, economic and cultural prosperity. And that garbage, which is untrue, is put forth from elementary school, you know, kindergarten, you know, primary school, elementary school forwards. The idea that we're in a civilized world. And I say to you today that this is comprehensively and utterly untrue. I propose this idea. We have not attained civilization. We're living in the Wild West, and we have been for thousands of years. We are nowhere near achieving civilization. And in fact, I would say we're living in a, a totalitarian system that demands total subservience and a system that uses war and social unrest and poverty and commerce and retarded backwards technology to control people. This is not and will never be the basis for any civilization. It's empire. Now, 
From a self point of view, that's a disaster. From a soul point of view, it's a challenge. From a divine point of view, it's a game. So in the system that I teach, we have that supernal trinity within us, self, soul, divinity. Self is like, oh my gosh, what a disaster. I might as well blow my brains out now. There's no hope. Soul says, wait a minute, this is a challenge. This is a kind of initiation to take control of our own world. The divine aspect within ourselves, the highest of all, says it's a game. It's a game that compels growth and it's actually quite exciting. Don't worry about it. So you always have to ask yourself, feeling from where? Thinking something from where? So, you know, whether you live in a quiet sort of suburban street in America or Europe, or, you know, you may live in an an elegant city like Vienna in Austria or, or Ghent, lovely city, one of my favorite cities, Ghent in Belgium. And life might be quite nice. You might not think about this kind of stuff. It seems to be civilized. You know, the kids go to school, the parents go to the office, you pay your taxes and go to the the symphony or the soccer game, or and, and, you know, you go to the restaurants and all all is apparently very agreeable and stable and sort of serene even. And life is good. And then, you know, there's the other people who may live in much more primitive uh, conditions in like a little adobe hut in Uzbekistan or Eritrea or Burma or somewhere. And life is hard and uncertain. And you work and work and work for long hours. And you follow traditions and you look after 15 family members. And you bow to the religious icons and you just be thankful there is food on your plate every day. However, whichever of those two worlds you live in, they are both part of empire. And just under the surface, there's the same problem, the same kind of toxic unreality that infects the system. So the society seems natural and normal and just part of the varying cultural and technological advancements around the world. And like I say, whether you're in the bloody dangerous slums of Honduras, which has the highest murder rate in the world, mm-hmm. or a really swanky penthouse in Manhattan. The control system is there, and it's there to contain and de-educate with, with sort of varying levels of social, socially acceptable um, hedonism and decad- decadence. And they disconnect men and women from divinity. So the dim-witted people think, well, you're talking about privilege here. Privilege is a control word. It is not part of the real organic world. In my life, in my cosmology, no one has privilege. In the spiritual evolution of the soul, there is no such thing. You make your own way. You harvest what you sow. You choose the compass bearing and you follow it precisely. And we'll, we'll come to that nihilistic alternative of empire, which, which gives us a sense of privilege being something to be ashamed of or a problem. But, you know, we're going to often talk about people here have been conditioned. I just want to just make one thing plain while, we, while we're on this. To keep things simple, think about this. When I talk about conditioning, I would say everyone alive today and everyone prior to that from about 1750 onwards has been subject to conditioning into imperial citizenship, a conditioning in our education and society which pits the human against nature, against divinity, and against the natural human journey. So mark this philosophically. Good people get conditioned. So some some conditioned people are good. So we, we can't forget that. Bad people get conditioned. So some conditioned people are very stupid and bad. But there is another sort of person, and this is the this is the exciting part for me. There's another sort of person who is highly resistant to conditioning. Another sort of human soul that is perhaps even impossible to condition. And I would say, and I'm glad to say, that probably a good healthy percentage of your listening audience and my tribal blood brothers and sisters fall into that category. People who are impervious to control. And we have to recognize that state of affairs. Many, many people are highly susceptible But there is a minority who, for no apparent reason, because it's not just education, it's not just the internet and a few books, it's been there with us in our bones since the beginning, always been there. There is a subset of the human population, a kind of soul, and I draw your attention to that world, who is impervious to control. 
And now we're seeing who those people are. What do you think causes that? And as you said, when you were saying our audience, I totally agree with you. Otherwise, I don't think they would be listening to us if they were not impervious <laughs> to all the <laughs> external right. control. But, you know, we can move to the next topic of nihilism, the religion of empire. No, let's, there's more to say on this. Let's okay, keep going. Let's keep going with the, the myth of civilization then. You know, let's let's bring it down to earth. Let's let's think about the concrete day-to-day experiences of just how this myth of civilization, this illusion of civilization, uh, might be concrete, might be actual for a minute. How how is the hub of imperial society actually composed, right? And I would say we can put that into perspective by thinking about some of its components. And and as we do this, we're going to draw a distinction between the illusion of a thing and the thing itself. The delusional fantasy image of something and the actual thing in its real form. So let me give you an example, real easy one. The most important example. The most important piece of critical imperial infrastructure is schools. Schools, colleges, universities, mainstream, and that's the important word here, mainstream schools in the imperial curriculum that that most of us went to, as did our friends and families, do not provide in any way a quality education concerning the world and its nature. Not at all. Everything in there, the language, the science, the history, the social studies, biology, physics, psychology, sexuality, media, Civics, politics, race, gender, world events, everything is total rubbish. It's next to worthless. So the illusion is, the illusion is that schools are wonderful, important places that we send our beloved young people to educate them and prepare them for work, prepare them for invaluable life skills, equip them to move independently in the world. And we should fund those schools and make them the best we can And teachers are doing a wonderful job. Everything is good. That's the illusion. The reality is something very, very different and hard to look at. Hard to look at. The reality is that schools are places of conditioning that blind people to the nature of reality and train them for very isolated and disconnected skills within the mainstream workforce. I have never, ever visited a mainstream school and thought it it was good. Never. And nor have any of the thousands of people I have personally met, high-caliber men and women I've worked with over the last 15 years. Neither have they. Now, of course, we all know some teachers, some classes, some sort of, you know, tender shoots of green beauty that do manage to survive amid all that toxic sludge. Good men and women doing a little bit of real teaching in very challenging circumstances. That is exceedingly rare, very infrequent most schools across the world exist to teach unreality and because the majority of people have become so utterly spellbound by the the sort of opulence of unreality just like when we were talking about discursiveness they think it's normal to go to school so although it's very sad to say mel it is my heartfelt observation that mainstream education Uh, does not provide education in any way, shape, or form. Think of it like this, right? They do more harm than good. Think of it like this. Imagine you you sort of industrial fast food burger drive-through joint, right, that just dish out poisonous quasi-food products that, in effect, are killing millions of people all the time through very deceptive advertising and purposeful sort of targeting of demographically poor neighborhoods, right? You know, let's just call them muck shit burger. They, you know, that same organization goes out and builds schools in Mumbai and Chad and Bangladesh and sends money to local organizations in Seattle and Tucson and Portland and New York and helps people clean drinking water and provide educational materials and books and, uh, you know, materials, pencils, paper, computers, laptops, Chromebooks. All across America and Europe, that same organization that kills people does that. So they do 95% bad 
5% good. But they pretend it's all good, of course, and big up and amplify that actual nine, you know, that actual 5% good and smear it all over the rest of it. That's like education. 95% of it is horrific, horrific, and 5% of it is decent. So schools do not open minds. They, they do not encourage real thinking and feeling. How could they? Because most of the teachers have zero idea what is going on in the world. They just follow the, unreal, the unreality um, signal from their own conditioning. How could they do anything else? They don't know that imperial collectivism has been inculcated into all American and European education systems for 140 years. They don't know that. So let me counterbalance that because that's a real negative, tough thing to say. Let me, let me give you the counterbalance. The, the real education systems are the ones we create ourselves under the very judicious counsel of wise elders who have real knowledge of the sciences and arts, of spirit, of metaphysics, and of nature. These schools exist. I've been to them. I've seen them with my own eyes. I've walked around them. Sometimes they are, you know, very sort of well-organized and formal organizations that have an international presence, right? And sometimes they are 25 moms who have uh, developed a homeschooling network informally among themselves. And the quality even of that is 50,000 times better than any Harvard, any Yale, any Cambridge, any Oxford because they pull in real knowledge where it is needed from equals and superiors to those places. But critically, they also do not brainwash. They do not indoctrinate. They do not shut down minds. They do not isolate a worldview. They do the opposite. They open. They stimulate. They allow space for the individual to grow. And they cultivate this fierce and excellent individualism, which is what this is all about. So strong, creative individuals under the guidance of reality-mastering, proven, wise elders is the only model for an education system. No wise elders, no education. It's as simple as that. Very, very important. Because the more I see education and the fact that teachers have to follow the script, and when I say teacher, I'm talking about professors in medical school, for example. They have to follow a script. Then you have a doctor that comes out with their toolbox and he makes him or her wonder why they can't cure anyone. Well, because that's the toolbox you're given. I know. And it's, it's, it's hard to say because I know people, you know, friends, family, you know, people I've worked with, whatever, loads of different things. It's hard to say this stuff. You know, it's hard to look at it. So remember I've mentioned the illusion of a thing is always comfortable and easy, always comfortable and easy. The reality of it is hard to look at, but until you look at the reality, you cannot then transcend it. So one, only when you've looked at the really tough uh, reality of it have you have you any chance to do anything about that. So think of this, right? We're talking about the myth of civilization. To cut to cut funding for public schools would therefore be good, wouldn't it? You see, to cut funding for public schools is the best possible thing you could do. And imagine saying that on CNN and getting oh, around. Oh, you'll applause. be burned at the stake in the 21st it, it, century. They'd cut your head off. Think of another thing: the Environmental Protection Agency. That does not protect the environment. That's not what it's for. It creates control systems that debase and confuse perceptions of the environment in order to generate profit. To cut funding from the EPA would be good. Uh, Department of Justice, right? That does not fairly enforce law and the administration of justice across the states. It does not. It does not do that. In fact, it's been co-opted and sequestered by a deep state. And forget all the garbage in the news. We've known this for 20, 30, 50 years. This is not recent. To overhaul that institution would be great. Absolutely great. As it would be the FBI. Or take another thing. Mainstream hospitals are places of sickness and ignorance. And there's a handful of good doctors and nurses, again, doing valiant work in the face of madness. Great. Thank you to those men and women. Thank goodness they're there. But once again, very, very few in number and getting fewer and fewer. And as the new conditioned medical schools churn out worse and worse ideas in the hearts of men and women, that situation just becomes, you know, untenable. 
to be born, right? Think of this. This one of your guests, uh, Janice, something or other. She was great, by the way. To be born in a regular hospital is to be born in a trauma environment. Which oh, she, Janice Barcelo, yes. Yes, she did a great job of explaining why that is, if anyone wonders why. To die in a regular hospital or hospice is to exit in a trauma environment. To be cut open by a man who is sick in his spirit and emotionally empty is to be carved up in a toxic trauma environment. To cut funding from hospitals would be great. Fantastic. Well done. Ob- Obamacare, the Affordable Health Care Act, is not about providing affordable health care. It never was in any way, shape, or form. And anyone who fantasizes about that are deeply deluded and sh- frankly should know better. Anyone who imagines that for a minute Empire gives a flying hoot, to put it politely, about affordable health care for crying out loud. Are you serious? Does anyone really believe that? Obamacare was created to cultivate sickness in the population and have rich, sick people pay for poor, sick people. And all the while, everybody, everybody is getting sicker and more dependent and more disconnected from any semblance of natural life. It's garbage. To get rid of the Affordable Health Care Act would be good. Of course it would. Now, again, this is not political. This has nothing to do with it. I couldn't care less about politics. I'm definitely, definitely not left-wing, that's for sure. If, if, uh, if that's something I can say and people understand it, it's because socialism is far more aggressively used to condition people than anything else. A sort of constitutional libertarian attitude is much harder to co-opt, but that can be done too. So nobody's safe in your red shorts or your blue shorts. It doesn't make any difference. But even, I think last time we talked, we touched on this, even with sort of LGBT, think again, think again, the ridiculous, ridiculous over-representation of a tiny minority of natural, homosexual, and transsexual people, whatever. What a stupid thing that is right now in the last couple of years. Think of it. Empire has no interest whatsoever in helping people of different genders and sexual orientations accept each other as decent human beings behaving freely and responsibly. Empire doesn't want that. Why would it? Of course it doesn't. What Empire wants is to remove the astonishing sacred power of the masculine solar force bit esoteric there and eliminate the sacred power of the feminine lunar force in men and women and make everything all sexuality all gender all masculine and feminine flow just a sort of facet of fashion of of society of culture where gender and sexuality are just whimsies as if you were buying some new shoes you're a man for a reason you are a woman for a reason Big, important, profound spiritual destinies that govern your excellent progress as a human soul. You can't change that, nor would a person want to if they understood the consecrated nature of their masculine feminine flow. You wouldn't want to touch it. So always you have to remember that the conditioned people cannot cannot um, disavow the illusion. They can't let go of it. They cannot let go of the illusion so they think schools are good, LGBT is great, Obamacare is great, hospitals are great, the FBI is there to protect us, Department of Justice makes things fair, the EPA looks after them. Absolute garbage. Are you stupid? Have you not been paying attention? Have you been listening to all these shows and reading these books but not really believing it? Because now is where the rubber meets the road, Is it? does it not? That's what we're talking about. This is the test. Can you believe it in front of your own eyes or not? I'm thinking in my mind, Neil, don't hold back. And I'm glad you're not holding back. I'm glad that you're Oh, my just... God. I'm tired of holding back. Isn't everybody? <laughs> Goodness me. I, I, I mean, I don't, feels... want to lose me. I don't want to lose me focus. I don't want to lose a gift of insight, if ever I've been endowed with that. Sometimes, I, sometimes yes, sometimes no. But boldness is necessary because people are scared to talk and it's just pathetic.
it comes to a point in life where you have to take a stand. You know, go, going back, because th- this is a great topic you're discussing, but going back for a second to schools, sure. with, the, with the affordability of technology and the centralization of information from a single source, you know, we see that all the time in the mainstream media. I'm surprised, Neil, that we don't see large TV screens in every classroom <laughs> broadcasting the curriculum to, to every school from a centralized source so that the message or the brainwashing is surgically controlled with precision. And that way the molding occurs as the empire wants it. Yeah, I know. It just doesn't make sense, does it? Centralization, bad. Centralization, globalization, consolidation, bad, 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 bad. Human beings are naturally asymmetrical, localized, completely spontaneous divine forces. You cannot have hypnosis um, removed from the source that hypnotized you. It doesn't work like that. To expect that, they say, well, why would they want to? Perhaps they could, but they don't want to. What they want to do is get everybody to buy into the illusions that we are civilized. So you see, when we see all these horrible, weird, negative things that make some people excited to have it articulated and other people sad to have it articulated, whatever. But when we do this, we then have a chance at transcending that thing because until we look at the hard uncomfortable grotesqueness of it we can't move past it now i've been looking at that for a long time and i know you have and i know again tons of your listeners have so you know we, we we're doing easy good ace cool work today this is great but as soon as you bleed that out from the alternative independent spheres like this into the mainstream the level of resistance is, is just unbelievable it's, it's incredible so it feels to me like, you know, particularly America and Europe as the places I know best. And, you know, people say, well, what about Indonesia, Neil? What about Jakarta? What about Brazil? I don't know those places. I'm going to talk about the places I do know. Here where I am now, America has been like an occupied country for a long time. And, and I'd say, sort of according to my calculations, that from about the time of President Rutherford Hayes, that, and that's that's the late... Uh, 1870s to the early 1880s, right the way through to these old guys who everyone's forgotten about, Garfield, Arthur, Cleveland, Harrison, McKinley, Roosevelt, Taft, whatever, Woodrow Wilson, there's one that is a bit more familiar. And then through to more modern figures, of course, like Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon and Ford and uh, Ray, uh, Carter and Reagan. We had a very slow crawl of imperial doctrine very slow you couldn't hardly notice it so that's the slow the slow crawl of empire it's its old tactic it plays the long game so you don't notice and it's been slowly introducing this doctrine of collectivism which we'll touch on later but the idea that the collective is what matters and the individual is unimportant the, the great tactic of empire is that and and for those uncertain of what collectivism is i'll tell you in one sentence collectivism is the political philosophy of centralized social and economic control. That's what it is. The central, the idea that centralized power structures will determine what is best for everyone, culturally, intellectually, financially, spiritually. So, so those presidents and their administrations were unwittingly, let's say, half-consciously rolling out the doctrines of collectivism through education, politics, finance, and, and sort of social norms um, and that, that made politics, you know, unfortunate because it became a vehicle for it. You know, not long after the Declaration of Independence thing started to – Empire wanted to grab America back. And it still failed and it will fail, but it's it's trying its damnedest. But I would say this, right, um, there are some moments of authenticity within that uh, infrastructure, of course, but they're, they're sort of eclipsed by the profound corruption uh, of, of – here of Congress. Congress now, uh, for non-US listeners, you know, people in Europe and Africa and Asia or whatever, who may not be sure what Congress is. Congress Parliament. is, yeah, Congress is the the the, uh, the Parliament of the United States, the bicam the bicameral legislative body of the federal government, made up of the two chambers of the Senate and the House of Representatives. So there's 435 representatives and 100 senators, right? And so. Then we come to the modern era, and this is the funny bit. Think of this. From 1989 to 2016, to the close observer of truth, the facade of fair, 
political representation was almost entirely discarded. And what we had instead was just racketeering, sort of imperial crime families running a shakedown on America and the rest of the world. The Bushes were not conservatives, for crying out loud. Clinton and Obama are not Democrats, for crying out loud. Don't be stupid. They have zero interest in people and progress and society and freedom. They have less interest in the spirit of the Republic of America than anyone I can think of. And they don't see this magnificent experiment in being different to the rest of the world. They've treated it like a brothel, this place. So George Bush Sr., Bill Clinton, George Bush Jr., and Barack Obama, and all their cabinets for 27 years do not represent American will. They're just globalist channels, globalist infrastructure. And then we come to 2016, right? And for empire, suddenly something totally, totally unexpected happened. Everything goes wrong. And we had the grim satisfaction of at least seeing the last gasp of Hillary Clinton, that vile witch. And we saw her fail in her deceit and lose her legacy for all time, consigned to the bloody garbage can of political history with a bit of luck. The emptiest suit of all of them done, finished, defeated. And what do we have? We have this very strange and admittedly raw and supercilious man, Donald Trump, not part of the imperial program, not what was intended. And despite the unprecedented corruption and prejudice of the New York Times and CNN in particular and the Washington Post and the BBC, NPR should know better, disgrace, ABC, Reuters, and a hundred others, he won. And that the media, those lying, scumbag, karmically suicidal sons of bitches cannot acknowledge their own conceit. Trump won, and he is upsetting the standard political protocols that have been in place since the 1800s. And I'm just conscious of the time. I am neither a Trump supporter nor a Trump hater. Both of those things will be ridiculous for me. But I see the value of what is happening through his office and through him, which I can explain very simply in, in but in detail. So I think we're going to come to that bit a bit later. But uh, Trump is a test. Quite a few of my friends and family have said this. Your attitude to Donald Trump is a test of your conditioning because he exposes conditioning left and right with every mouth, every action of his, of his mouth, every word out of his mouth is what I'm trying to try the words I'm trying to get out of my mouth. Every time that guy opens his mouth, he says something provocative. Every time he does something, he does away with all the established protocols. If you understand what empire is, nothing could be better. He is not racist. He is not sexist. That is absolute garbage. And if you think that, you've been conned. It's rubbish. The, the terms, the very terms racist, sexist, xenophobic, anti-Semite, are virtually meaningless now, totally redundant. They've ceased to infer anything, if indeed they ever did, which you and I did actually talk about in July 2016, decoding imperial code words. Great conversation that Mal and I had, uh, and if you haven't listened to that, you should do, because we did some great work together. The terms racist, sexist, xenophobe, anti-Semite mean nothing. Nothing. And I have heard them used almost always without any merit or reason. And I think most sort of rational, awakened people will have also perceived that too. The people who bandy those words about are the most unwise people I've ever seen. So those words are used as pressure points and threats, not as astute criticisms of poor conduct or faulty thinking. Hardly ever will you see these terms, racist, sexist, xenophobe, anti-Semite used in any substantial way. And and of course now these isms can be labelled at anybody with sort of relative impunity to uh, anyone who even observes distinctions between gender, race, culture, sexuality. Anyone who prefers one set of characteristics over another is now a racist, a sexist, or whatever. And I'll say again, under the imperial definitions of those terms, I fit all the criteria to be a sexist, racist, bigoted, xenophobe because I acknowledge, observe, and respect profound differences 
between the races, the genders, the orientations, the cultures, ethnic groups, heritages, histories, levels of conduct, psychological profiles. I am a racist, sexist, bigoted, xenophobic son of a bitch. Sorry. Under imperial definitions, I am. Now, anyone who knows me as a man of decency and dignity and honor and integrity, those are absolutely the last thing I am. What utter, total garbage. So you see the stark contrast that we even have to watch out for in our own demeanor. Because you'll watch, everyone else says, well, I'm not a racist, of course. I'm not sexist. I'm not prejudiced. Don't ever say that. We, nobody is. It's garbage. It's absolute garbage. There's tiny, tiny number of complete idiots who do that stuff. And they're almost infinitesimally small. They've almost disintegrated under their own imploding rubbishness. Most people are not those things. What we do have is a faulty system where we can't even talk about our distinctions. We cannot discriminate about our excellent, different, dissimilar characteristics. So it is garbage. It's total garbage. Trump, again, he speaks about those things, so he is those things. I speak about those things. I am those things. I'm more racist, more xenophobic, more violent, more bigoted than he is. And again, walk into my life, shadow me for a year through the world, you'll see that's, that's garbage. I'm none of those things. Never would be. It's not in my nature. It's not in my bones. If you come to a Neil Kramer event, September 8, 9, and 10, by the way, uh, Omega Institute, upstate New York, it's like a Star Trek convention. There's people from all over the universe, <laughs> like all sexualities, all heights, all body shapes, transgender, gay, lesbian, straight, white, black, red, yellow, blue, green, people you've never seen before except on television, they come to my events. We don't give a shit about that stuff. No one defines themselves by that. That's almost irrelevant, almost irrelevant. No prejudice, no need, and yet preferences, differences celebrated, understood, understood completely and comprehensively, completely different way of doing it, complete respect for sexuality, masculine, feminine, everything, gender, race, culture, complete respect for ethnic heritage, and a total, total about turn to the disgrace that you see on CNN and New York Times, a disgrace to humanity, those places. What, a, what an incredible situation where all the evidence is now before us, and we're like detectives, with, we're spoiled with an embarrassment of riches. The evidence to solve the case is before us. Everything is there. All we need to do is choose which pieces we're prepared to pick up and which we're going to leave till later because most people don't want to touch anything. It's too hot. The crime scene is still, still too hot, you know? So people like you and I and many of your other excellent guests, we have to just show people not to be afraid. You must have a level of valiance and courage here and a level of dignity in your own sense of truthfulness do not be deceived by the media who have now shown their true colors what a disgrace they are you know if, if we have to take a one and only break and you'll tell us more about your upcoming event but i have to say this folks if you want to stop the division let's stop labeling people where i come from i remember in school we had the blondest of the blonde, and we had the blackest of the black. We had the whole spectrum. Mm -hmm. And you never saw my teachers say, oh, you belong to this, you belong to that. We were all in the same place. We knew that we were different. We respected each other's differences. But this thing that you have to belong in this silo, and you need to protect your people, and blah, 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 and just create so much division between people. And about Trump. And I know, listen... I've received a lot of flack here because I took a stand before the election because for the life of me, my vote for Trump was a vote against another globalist, namely no Hillary Clinton. No but, kidding. But I have to say, when we come back, we want to discuss Trump a little bit more because, as you say, you think he's a hayoka? A hayoka, basically, Donald, folks. Donald, sorry, I beg your pardon. Donald Trump is the great Western white hayoka, and a hayoka is, Mel? I'll, I'm going to tell you, it's a kind of sacred clown in the culture of the Lakota people of the Great Plains of North America is a contrarian jester, a satirist who speaks, moves and reacts in an opposite fashion to the people around them. Correct? Absolutely bang on. And 
If anyone's concerned why Mel Fabregas and Neil Kramer like Donald Trump, we can assuage all your concerns by exploring the Donald Trump as a Hayoka. And when we do that, you will understand everything and everything will fall into place and you will go away with a happy heart. (laughs) Let's do that on the way back. But tell us, how can people buy, by the way, your book and uh, also your upcoming events? Sure. All my stuff. Yeah. So... The most important thing is uh, we have a wonderful annual gathering, September 8, 9, and 10, up in the beautiful, beautiful rural upstate New York at the Omega Institute, who uh, are a, a great organization who you know facilitate great seminars. So I have a weekend seminar of wonderful esoteric, spiritual, metaphysical excellence, such yumminess, you will, your eyeballs will explode. It's so good. And more than anything, fellowship, great fellowship with super high caliber men and women from all over the world who come together, who are serious, who want to know what things are in the world. And we talk about that amongst ourselves and we process our lives and we think about the mysteries of the universe with great gladness and great strength. So if you want to do yourselves a massive favor and invest in yourself and meet some other wonderful people, Come and see me September 8, 9, and 10, 2017 at the Omega Institute in beautiful, excellent, gorgeous, rolling hillside of upstate New York. And you can go to neilkramer.com and check that out. Read my book, The Unfoldment. Download my workshops, $20 each, easy peasy, massive bargain. They're all on there. And hours and hours and hours of podcasts, which I call Romecasts, for free. So you want to check out my stuff before you part with your hard-earned money. I get that. Go and listen to the Romecasts. There's 20 of them now, which represents, I don't know, maybe 30 hours of free material. Go and listen to that. See what you think. NeilKramer.com. I think Neil Kramer will be known as one of the best modern philosophers of all time. I think of the mystery schools in the past. When you attend one of Neil Kramer's sessions, I'm telling you, it's a modern-day mystery school, and I hope you don't miss it. But we have so much more when we come back. We have the religion of empire, which is nihilism. Sounds like an oxymoron, but it's not. The staircase of disbelief, philosophy of collectivism, order, liberty, virtue, and the Hayoka we were telling you about Trump. All of it when we come back in the member section. This is Mel Fabregas. I'm delighted to be here with Neil Kramer. Don't go anywhere. Thanks for listening to part one of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest, head on over to the member section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. You don't want to miss the rest. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for lots of great products. Thank you.